sustainable farms recognize that instead of being focused on yield and output to the, at the expense of the soil, the way you have sustainable crops and cultures is to focus on the soil. If you get the soil right, the plants will be fine. If you ignore the soil, they may be fine in the short run, but they won't sustain it. And I think what's happened in education is, is exactly parallel. We've had these depersonalized, inhuman processes of testing and compliance and conformity, which dull the appetite for learning. And along the way, we've eroded the culture of education. What I'm talking about is a cultural shift. If you get the culture right in an organization, if you have a, like in the natural, if you have a vibrant mix of, of the arts, the sciences, if you have a vibrant relationship between teachers and learners, close links with the community, then schools flourish, communities flourish in a way that they don't if you try to treat them as impersonal processes that are driven by testing and the sterile form of, of data production. So knowing, understanding how the natural processes of life and learning operate should be the key to uh, not only to how we do education more effectively, but how education becomes synergistic with the lives we're trying to live on the planet generally. And Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. As a professor of leadership, host of the Leadership in the Environment podcast, and constant student of Acting by My Environmental Values, I live and work in the intersection of leadership, education, and the environment. Ken Robinson does too, but with one big difference. He's been here for decades longer, actively practicing in each. This episode approaches each of education, leadership, and the environment from several perspectives. I can't say anything better than his voice carries the wisdom and vitality of someone who's worked here in this space and in the intersection of these areas for longer and with greater passion than maybe anyone I've met or worked with, and I'm in this world. So without further ado, let's listen to Ken Robinson. I'll just say as one aside, our schedules meant recording by phone, meaning that the audio quality isn't like being in a studio, but I believe you'll find Ken's message transcends the medium and hope you listen past the noise. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Sir Ken Robinson. Ken, how are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you, Josh. And I'm glad you're here. I hope I don't make you blush. But uh, years and years ago, when I started teaching, I taught in a very traditional style of lecture. And there's a movie called uh, Most Likely to, to Succeed, which is the first I came across you. And it was a tremendously influential uh, documentary for me that it's not the only thing, but one of the main things that shifted me from what I now would call a compliance-based education model into, to me, it's overlaps strongly with leadership. And so you've been in my life in a way for a long time. I met you in person in November. So I hope you don't mind my starting with that. <laughs> well, I'm delighted. Honestly, I'm delighted to hear it. Thank you. Uh, it's a very interesting movie, Most Likely to Succeed. And you know, it looks at all kinds of different models of education. And that's, you know, it's been a big theme in the work I've done for a long time, that the, 
there are big differences between learning, education, and school. You know, kids love to learn. They don't all get on with education, and some have a very hard time with school. And I've, I, you know, my work has been focused on that. We don't need to fix students. We need to fix school. And that learning and is a relationship, and that there are all kinds of ways of handling that relationship to, you know, f- for the better good of, of teachers and students alike, and, and for the vitality of education. So yes, thank you. I think they're most likely to succeed. It's been very widely viewed, actually. It's a good movie. It looks particularly, doesn't it, at the work in the second half of High Tech High in California. Uh, but the principles there apply across all kinds of institutions. Yeah. So you talked about differences between learning, education, and school. And for me, as a professor, I teach in university level, and that was mostly about K-12 or mostly high school. And I see huge parallels between learning and leadership that I see them almost very similar. Not learning as you described it, not school, because I think school is much closer. I don't know. it's It's not the style of leadership that I like to practice or teach. And I think that the work that you do in education and in schools and in learning would be very useful in the world of leadership and leadership education. And I'd love to hear some things that that could we could learn, we in the leadership world could learn from you in your world, which is a very similar world, actually, and a lot of overlap. Yes, I mean, they overlap in almost every way. Just to elaborate briefly on, on that distinction between learning, education, and school, and I'll, I'll come on to the leadership thing in just a minute. The, it's a very important set of distinctions for me, really. Uh, I mean, they're all connected clearly, but learning is the natural process of, as I see it, the natural process of acquiring new skills and understanding. And we're born into the world with a voracious appetite, a deep curiosity to learn, to learn about the world around us. And also as human beings, not just to explore the world, but to try and figure it out. You know, our, our Lives are shot through with theories and ideas and beliefs and values, uh, perceptions shared and otherwise. Education, uh, to make the distinction, uh, I think of as a more intentional process of learning, a more organized approach to learning. And it's something people can do for their own. People are self-taught in all kinds of areas. But the most sustained process that we're all exposed to of of intentional education is K-12, and then for a great many people, higher education beyond that. And we have education systems, as I say, you know, primarily for you know, political and economic uh, and social reasons, uh, quite properly. But the, the conceit of education, of organizers' approach to learning, is that there are some things that we believe culturally and for other reasons that uh, people need to learn and we shouldn't leave it to chance, which is why we have a curriculum and why we argue so much about what should be in it. Uh, And the other reason is that we assume there are things that people can't readily learn on their own and and they need some help to do that, which is the base of pedagogy. And again, there are endless arguments about how pedagogy works best. But the the problem as I see it in education is that, that, uh, broadly speaking, is that Uh, The way our education systems have evolved is out of sync with the natural appetites and rhythms of learning for most people. It's not a coincidence that many kids go into education, the great majority of them in elementary school, you know, where their spirit's high and their their excitement raging to to get onto this new thing. And by three or four years in, the the energy starts to stall. And by the time people get into into high school, for many kids, it's died or kind of withered on the branch altogether. And it's not because or, teachers or want it that way. 
Mm-hmm. It's smothered, yeah. It's not because teachers yeah. want it that way. It's, it's the institutional patterns, rhythms, expectations of how the system operates. And it, it's deadening for very many people. So I'm not, I'm not arguing against education. I'm arguing that we should be revitalizing it and rethinking the basic principles on which we're operating and why we're doing it. School is a different thing. I mean, a school, in its essence, is a community of learners. And I think they're, they're vastly important. Uh, you know, most of what we learn, we learn with and from each other. And learning is a social and a cultural achievement. Schools are best conceived, and I think, as a community of learners. And the trouble is that we've come to think of schools as certain types of institution. They've evolved in certain ways over the past few hundred years. So we think of them as having particular habits and rhythms and rituals you know, we, if you ask people to think of a school, we, we tend to get common pictures of them, you know, rooms, you know, places with special rooms and lockers and, and bells ringing and uh, the day being divided into bits and, and knowledge being carved up into subjects. But schools don't have to be that way at all. And that's a big part of this is to rethink how schools work. I mean, universities are exactly uh, alike in that respect with K-12. I mean, there's a bit more freedom uh, in them, obviously. Uh, more choice, but but they're still organised institutionally in ways that don't always facilitate the kind of learning that, that's most important for people. And uh, so the, the principles do apply right across. The leadership issue is very important because, like all institutions, uh, the leader has a, an overwhelming impact on the character, the personality, and the mood and culture of an organisation. It's hard to overstate, isn't it? I mean, you just have to see what's happened in America with a change of presidents. It, it's astonishing how uh, a change in leadership can affect an entire cultural energy in a country. And it's certainly true in institutions. So the roles of leaders, and teachers are leaders in their own uh, fields, you know, in, in the work they do with their students. Leadership and teaching are very, very closely intertwined. Yeah, I, that's been one of my big discoveries and why I love teaching so much. As I've Evolved. There was a model that I had before, which I think drives a lot of the more coercive style of teaching, which is that like the teacher knows, the student doesn't. The teacher gives information to the student, then the student knows. And if you want to tell how well it's happening, you test them. And the more you test, the more you can find out, are we doing it well? And the model, from a certain sense, does, from, from an outside perspective, it does make sense. It doesn't seem to work. And what it's led to me to is a model, my current model is more like I teach classes that are, they're always, what do you call it? Not required classes. They're, what's what I'm looking for? Anyway, not required classes. So people have always chosen it. So I know that they're in it because they want to be. And if they're in it, if they want to be there, there's something that they want. There's something that they care about. There's something motivating them. And my, I see my role is to find that motivation, uncover it, get rid of, you know, help them through the vulnerabilities of sharing it and, the fear of being judged and things like that, and then give them a way to act on it. Because I have more experience than they do. I'm generally older than them, although I do teach adults as well. And if I can get them motivated and give them direction, then I just let them loose. And then they get results. And I, that's also my style of leadership, which is, it kills me when I hear someone say, like, how are you going to convince someone to do something? Or in different words, they'll say, like, what are the carrots and sticks that you're, that you're going to set up so that they do it? Which is... The latter is management to me, but the former is just convincing people. To, it seems like the opposite of leadership to me. And so there's a parallel in, well, I don't know, this, this is what I, I thought about when you were just saying what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I agree with that. One of the 
Well, there are a couple of, couple of analogies to draw. Uh, there was a book published years ago. I, I began my work in education with an interest in theatre, drama and theatre in schools. And uh, it's, it's what my doctoral studies were about. I, I wrote a long dissertation about the nature and importance and character of drama as a form of education. And uh, along the way, uh, I came across the work of a guy called Peter Brook, who was a theatre director, I mean, a very distinguished and accomplished theatre director, who uh, for years uh, was involved with the theatre in Britain uh, and then founded the Centre for Theatre Research in Paris and was responsible for the whole raft of really startlingly good uh, and powerful theatre productions. So he wrote a book some years back now called The Empty Space, which was about his you know, his ideology as, as a theatre practitioner and his methods. And, and he said that his, you know, his interest, his mission, so to speak, as a, as a theatre practitioner was to help to create theatre experiences which were transformatively powerful. And he said, you know, a lot of theatre isn't like that. A lot of theatre is an entertainment. It passes the evening. Uh, it's a diversion. But then the evening would have passed anyhow. But it isn't, you'd certainly fall short of calling it transformative. Um, but he said the theatre has that power, and that's what he's interested in, in tapping into and focusing. And he said to do that, he needed to ask himself a question, which is, you know, when we talk about theatre, what are we talking about? What is it that we have in mind? And as a way of getting to it, he performs a rather brief thought experiment. Uh, he says, you know, if you take a theatre experience, what's the heart of it? Uh, and in other words, what can you take away and still have it? What's the irreducible minimum? And he says, well, you could take away the script. A lot of theatre is not scripted in many cultures. And, and historically, people didn't work from scripts. So you don't need a script. You could take away the costumes. A lot of theatre isn't costumed. It's not necessary. You could take away the stage. You could take away the lighting. You could take away the curtains. You could take away the crew. So that, as a matter of fact, you could take away the director. And you could get rid of the building. You don't need that. A lot of theatre can happen outdoors and, and does. He said, when it comes to it, the only thing you need, the only thing you need for theatre is an actor in a space and somebody watching. Because the actor performs a drama, theatre describes the relationship between the performance and the audience. You know, if there's no audience, there's no theatre. If there's no actor, there's no theatre. You need both. And... He said, so theatre is a relationship word, and the role of a theatre practitioner is to focus on that relationship, to make that relationship the most powerful it can be, and, and not to add anything to it which distracts from it or dilutes it. And he said, a lot of things that we see in theatre, you can have wonderfully powerful theatre happening in a, in a big auditorium, but you have to recognise that what you're focusing on is that, the power of the relationship between the performance and the audience. And you see, I think that's a direct parallel with education that the role of a teacher is to facilitate learning and it seems odd to even have to say it but teachers end up doing so many other things whether they're in higher education or in, in pre-k uh, they're doing administration they're, they're looking after assessments they're doing all kinds of going to meetings all sorts of things that, that clutter up the the working life of a teacher but their essential role what they're there to do is to help people learn, to facilitate learning. And 
My view of it is that if, if we don't get that relationship right, if people don't understand that's the heart of the business, that everything should be there to facilitate that, then we're missing the point entirely. And like theatre, uh, you know, education has become encumbered with every type of distraction, you know, with testing regimes, with building codes, with union laws, with professional uh, affiliations, with uh, you know, economic concerns and interests. And, and the consequence of that is that, that it's perfectly possible for people to talk about education and ignore the very thing that's supposed to be at the heart of it. You know, if the students were to leave the building or the teachers, there would not be anything to talk about. And so having that relationship right is deeply important. And great teachers understand that, that, that to be a teacher is in its way to be an artist. I always think of teaching as an art form, that a great teacher has, like a doctor or a musician or you know, any other professional uh, who understands their role, there's you, know, you need to be skilled, you need to be knowledgeable about the work that you're doing, you need to be practiced, you need to be getting progressively better at it. But a great uh, professional, a great artist, understands that there's a huge amount of judgment, of connoisseurship, of knowing what works here and now, not working off, uh, off a formula, uh, knowing that this would be approved here and it might not have worked somewhere else. It, this, is, this is how we apply this idea in the present uh, you know, it's like a great sommelier. You, know, you can go to a restaurant and there, there may be a wine uh, cellar with thousands of bottles of wine in it. And, you know, and, and, but the job of the sommelier is to understand all that, but say, actually, but I think this particular bottle would work with, with what you're ordering. It's drawing from your repertory of knowledge and understanding and, and depth of experience to think, well, what would work here and what would work best just now? And that's what great actors do. They, they modulate the performance to the energy they're creating in the room as they're doing it. And great teachers do that. And they can involve direct instruction. They can do, and it often will, because teachers often know and should know more in some respects than the t- people they're teaching in some respects. But it also involves knowing when to provoke inquiry, when to ask interesting questions, when to challenge somebody's conventional thinking, when to get people on their feet, moving together, when to get them working on projects, when to get them teaching each other uh, and stepping back. It's why I always think of teaching, you know, before the, before the word got tainted uh, with other associations, but I always think of teaching as enabling. It, it's about creating conditions, the optimum condition in which people will want to extend their own knowledge and understanding. And one of the first roles of teachers today is to fire up the imagination, to excite the interest of the students, to, to try and engage them in the excitement they feel for the questions they're asking as well. But to keep extending the, their reach, to keep cultivating their appetite and their curiosity to learn and giving them challenges so they will extend that. And that's why I think of, of pedagogy as, as an art form, because it involves all of that. And it's a relationship. You know, there's a, it's a complex relationship uh, in, in, in a student group. There's the teacher to the students, there's the students with each other, and there's all of those to the issues they're exploring. And I know, I'm sure you, you've had it too in your own experience, that it can happen that disciplines that you may have started out with a big interest in, you start to lose interest in because of the way it's being taught and the, and, and the teacher and the personality of the teacher or their approach to it. I can also think of disciplines I thought I would have no interest in at all, but I got very excited by because of the way the teacher engaged as in, in the discipline itself or the issues and the topics. So that relationship between the, the field, the students, and the teacher is at the heart of all this. And, and that, to me, is the essential piece. It sit, that should sit at the heart of a whole ecosystem 
of education and everything else, like in the natural environment, should be organized to facilitate that. And, you know, the, the role of a teacher is to create that sort of culture in the classroom, you know, classroom in inverted commas. The role of a principal is to create that sort of climate within the institution so teachers and students can do that. And, and the ecosystem builds out. I see a very strong power with the way we think of the natural environment. Wow, that, I have to say that that was one of the most powerful few minutes of listening. I was alternating between hearing you at, or listening to you as, a, as an educator myself, as a citizen, as a student, as a, a leader or a teacher of leadership. And I wonder if I can just share a few of the things of the many things, like I can't go through everything that came to mind as you're speaking and pick up whatever, I think I was watching a video of you speaking about Shakespeare was once a student and <laughs> what it must've been like to teach Shakespeare English. That's right. And so that, it made me think of that and that's lighthearted and- No, but it's true. I mean, I said, he was in somebody's English class. <laughs> Right. Yeah, and who did they have to quote? <laughs> <laughs> and well, uh, again, I kept translating what you were saying, talking about teaching to talking about leading and how the role of to facilitate learning is something that that's, that means what the teacher does is facilitate and what the student does is learn. And I grew up thinking that the teacher like did something to the student. I used to think that the leader got people to do things. And it's a very simple thing to say the teacher's job is to facilitate learning, but it's almost a lot of it. It's like getting out of the way of getting rid of all the distractions so the student can learn, or maybe it's leaving the distraction. I mean, letting kids do what they want. I, I thought a lot of, have you worked with Peter Gray and, or Sudbury schools? I know Peter's work. Yeah. Yeah. And I've spoken okay. with him. Yeah. Uh, I mean, lately I've been very, interested in learning about that model of learning to let kids just completely play. Well, I mean, there's a lot of structure, but it's not the structure. It's different. But that kids want to learn. Or the John Dewey quote that has stuck with me more than maybe any other is, children are always asking questions, but almost never in school. Mm -hmm. And which has many different meanings, but I mean, that they're always asking questions. They want to learn. Give it left to their own devices. They'll probably learn and they'll probably enjoy it. And a lot of what we do is getting in the way of that learning. Another piece of what I, what I was picking up from you, it was, you've been doing this for a while and I don't hear you fatigued. I hear you passionate. And that passion for a lot of people, people dream of being so passionate about something and making a difference. And if anything, it's, I, I would, correct me if I'm wrong, but your motivation and passion, if I'm reading right, is as great as ever, maybe greater. Yes, it is. I'd say that's true. Absolutely. We, and, and it is because I think the issues are urgent, they're profound, and they touch on everything. Uh, I mean, it, it, they touch on what we understand about human growth and development. I feel that education is quite clearly enmeshed in issues of human rights and entitlement. And so it touches on that, a, a sense of our, our purpose in being here it also reaches into the, the quality of our lives as a whole. And, and I don't mean it as a, as a piece of hyperbole. I think these are existential issues that are to do with the character of our species and how we relate to the rest of the planet. And it couldn't really be much more important than that. I mean, the, you know, the, there's a long-standing, there has been a very long-standing conversation, as you know, um, about the relationship between nature and nurture. 
in human life. And I, I think anybody who's had children knows that this is a, a dynamic relationship. I mean, I mean th- th- there's no serious case for believing that children come into the world as a blank sheet, you know, unformed. We come into the world fully loaded with with characteristics, personalities, dispositions, and a whole array of, of talents and and um, and capacities. What becomes of them does have everything to do with our circumstances and the opportunities we're given. And education is a very big part of that. It's how we uh, we bring people into this unfolding story of humanity. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's at a conservative count uh, over the past 200,000 years or so of, of modern humanity, there have been, it's estimated, maybe 110 billion people who've drawn breath on the planet. Uh, I mean, 10% of us pretty much on the planet right now. We're the largest generation in human history by a, a very wide margin. I mean, we're about 7.5 billion now, but we're heading for 10 maybe at the end of this century. You know, so it depends how you count these things, but you know, that's maybe 5,000 generations of human beings. And we've all contributed to this complex fabric of knowledge and understanding and experience. So we, we come into the world, you know, not as blank sheets, and we don't come into a world that's just started. We come in, as say, fully loaded with all kinds of preoccupations and talents and dispositions into a world that's in process uh, with deep histories, deep cultural patterns, uh, deeply ingrained habits of mind. And part of education is to look in, help children look into themselves and discover what lies inside them. And part of it is to, and it's, it's related, is to help them look out and engage with and make their way in this world and, and make, make their contribution to it and live a life of purpose and meaning. Uh, so how we think of education, how we cultivate these talents, what we value in the curricula that we present and what we convey in the teaching methods that we practice is deeply important. It's deeply important for the individuals. It's deeply important for how we become part of the growing consciousness of our species. And to have all that reduced to some kind of torpid mixture of testing, profit, and SATs and ACTs in, in the interests of a what I think is now a bankrupt system is, is a terrible degradation of, of the proper noble purpose of education. And I do think it's existentially important for us because we have, for all our genius and innovation and creativity, you know, we're still creatures of habit and we're, we're governed by all kinds of negative as well as deeply positive feelings, emotions and capabilities. And we've, we've created a, a series of circumstances now, uh, particularly over the past 300 years in the way we live, uh, the way we have disregarded our relationship to the natural environment, the way we've disregarded callously our relationship with other living creatures on the planet where we are uh, creating conditions for our own possible extinction. I mean, I, I think it, it's not an exaggeration to say that. And education is is deeply rooted in all of this. And it, it's why I, I often quote H.G. Wells, another science fiction writer who once said that civilization is a race between education and catastrophe. And I think it is. Uh, I think it's as serious as that, and it's it's it, it is at the at the level of in, of individual lives. I mean, I, I think of my own life. I'm, I'm sure it's been true of yours that the effect of education, of the teachers we meet, the things we're encouraged to learn, the things we're encouraged not to learn, to turn away from or to embrace, all of that, and it has a profound effect on how we see ourselves and the world around us and how we operate within it. So it happens at that granular level of the individual, but it happens also at the overall level of how we 
are together as an increasingly populous uh, species on this planet. And, you know, we're living at a time where we're, we're putting almost irreparable demands on the planet's ecosystem to sustain our way of life. Uh, and also at a time when we're more connected. So it's a time of great sort of hope and optimism, but also a time of very serious and, and you know, potentially um, tragic challenges uh, for all of us. So, you know, education is not trivial. And, and I say I, I, my concern for a long time has been that it, it has become trivialized by the wrong sort of conversation about what it's for and how it can be made better. And it certainly can't be made better with this you know, sad regime of testing and linearity and, uh, and compliance that, that has uh, politically come to dominate the way education is being talked about in our public forums. I think it's much more serious than that and, and also much more hopeful than that if we get the mixture right. Yeah, I was listening to the, the way that you talked about how it is now, which is like a drudgery. It feels like it's like in mud and not playful mud like kids playing. And what you were talking about before, I was the words, I was trying to think of how it, it felt like glorious or beautiful in like the way of someone might describe a sunset. You used the words, I think, um, noble and certainly important. And from that perspective, it's such a different world than I think I grew up thinking about of education is like the more school side of things. And it also brought me back to what you're saying before about drama. And I just recently had a conversation with a professor at West Point, which is one of the premier places that teaches leadership. And, and she's deeply passionate about teaching. And she pointed out how we were talking about how they teach drama there. And it's not obvious to the outside person why drama would be taught at a place that's teaching the military, but it's completely obvious to them, although not to everyone. And it's increasing, like there are some people who got caught up in the testing stuff and drama doesn't really make sense. But the people that is most important to are the generals. Like the, the people who have been out practicing what the school teaches for an entire lifetime, you know, 40 years sometimes. And they're the ones that it's like, this is what is most important here. You know, you got to do your push-ups, you got to march in formation, but that's where the stuff that I'm not gonna be able to put into words, but I, I hope that people listening are like, that's, they get it, you know, in ways that I haven't, I've barely been alive that long, let alone practicing something for that long. And also, I, there's a, a distinction that I like to make, not between, well, that when I started teaching, a friend of mine was taking acting classes, Meisner technique in particular, which is like method acting. And at the time, I was no, I'd noticed that actors possessed great social and emotional skills that a lot of my professors didn't. And yet a lot of them had dropped out of school, like on inside the actor studio routinely, most of the guests, I think probably like three quarters of, of these great, you know, acting, Oscar winning actors and so forth, they dropped out of school. Then I learned that they didn't stop learning. They learned in a different style. And so I wanted to learn that style because I, I could see the effects. And there's learning drama in the sense of like reading Shakespeare and seeing Shakespeare perform and things like that. And Shakespeare is a stand-in for, let's say, all art, all social, expressive, emotional, performance-based or you know, it doesn't even have to be performance-based because it could be visual art. There's learning from other artists, but there's also learning to practice it and putting yourself out there and allowing yourself to be vulnerable and searching inside yourself that these things, I, I can't put into words how important that is and how I've only recently gotten this, that that's the stuff to keep, if you have to keep anything, arts and sports activities seem to me far more important than 
It's not like one or the other, but there's such a dearth of that in my educa- in my formal education. Outside the classroom, it was there. There are two key observations in, in all of this, uh, for me anyways. I mean, one of them is that, you know, if you think of this relationship between nature and nurture, that you know, all, all of us, it's one of the points I'm making at a book I did a few years ago called Out of Our Minds, you know, but, but all of us essentially live in two worlds. And, and we know this is true. You know, there's a world, uh, as it was once put, that exists only because you exist. You know, it's the world that came into being when you did. It's the world of your own private consciousness, the world that you know, began when you did and will end when you do, according to how you think of these things. You know, but it, it's the world that, it, of your own you know, interior um, consciousness and, and imaginings and capacities, the world that it only exists because you do. But there's another world that exists whether or not you exist. It was the world that you, you came into that was there before you were born. It'll be there when you've gone. Uh, it's the world of other people, other minds, other consciousness, of material objects, of other living things. And that's there whether or not you're there. Uh, the world that exists whether or not you exist. And education has to look in both directions. It has to help people understand the interior world and the world around us, as I was saying earlier. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is that we don't live in the world, as it seems to me, as other creatures do. I mean, we, we make far too much of the differences between ourselves and the rest of life on Earth. But in some respects, we clearly are different. In, in, and the most obvious way to say it is that we live in a world of, of our own creations, that we are empowered with deep resource of imagination and all the practical powers of creativity of putting our imaginations to work and to fabricate, to make things, to compose theories and ideas and to and to create artifacts and, uh, and technologies. I mean, other creatures pretty much live in the world as they find it, and we don't. You know, we create agricultural systems, we create technologies, scientific theories. We, you know, we have built machines that enable us to leave the planet, not just look at the stars. You know, we, we are by far the most creative creatures, as far as we can tell, ever to, ever to walk on the Earth. And at the root of all that is, uh, is our you know, immense powers of imagination and abstract thought and of representative thought. You know, the fact that we're speaking over a telephone using words and languages that we didn't invent ourselves, but we are, we are heirs to and we can contribute to. You know, we have the capacity to step through our own consciousness and turn to the minds of other people and to communicate with them in the ways that other creatures simply don't in anything like the same degree of sophistication. And you know, what we've come to think of is the arts and the sciences have equally powerful roles in all of these areas. I mean, the, the natural sciences, you know, to caricature it in a way, are the natural sciences are our attempts to understand the world around us in their own terms. You know, and, and the aim of, of a natural scientist is to develop theories and, and ideas and, and constructs of understanding which are independent of their own experience of these things. You know, our understanding of the cosmos is not dependent on the personality of Newton uh, or of Einstein. Uh, it, the test of it is whether these ideas can be validated independently of the people who compose them. They're objective in that sense, you know, that they're open to uh, challenge and verification. So uh, part of the role of the natural science is to, is to try and make sense of the world around us in its own terms. The arts sort of sit on the border, I think, between our interior and our external world. I mean, the questions the arts always ask are, is, you know, what's the nature of of our experience of these things. What is it like as a human being to have this experience? And, and you know, how does this appear you know, in terms of the quality of our, of our lived experience? And, and art forms you know, are as various as our capacity to 
to represent these experiences. You know, sometimes we represent them visually, sometimes we do them in sound or some combination of the above. We represent these experiences through our physical movements, through our engagement with other people. And, and drama is, is quintessentially the apl- application of our imagination creativity into aesthetic forms which address the issue of what, what do people do in these circumstances? How do people behave faced with these uh, these challenges, these circumstances, or in in concert with this belief system? What do people do in these circumstances? And so all of the art forms, you know, in their, in their vast variety, and there are, there's so many of them, but they're all caught up in this tussle for, for meaning, for understanding, for making sense of what it is to be in the world from, you know, from the perspective of the experience of living it. And as you say, it's neither one or the other, it seems to me. There should not be a choice in education between the arts and the sciences. And in fact, until relatively recently in human history, people didn't make such choices. And all the scientists I know are impelled by a deep passion for the work they do. They're impelled by aesthetic consideration. Uh, and the artists I know are also highly objective and deeply skilled in what they do. And, and they're just as involved in the search for understanding of a rigor. You know, the... One of the failings of the school system so far, institutionally, I'm not talking about individuals, has been its inability to recognize the extent to which the arts and sciences coexist in our, in our search for meaning and purpose in, in our lives, and, and therefore how they address different parts of, our, uh, of that quest and should do in education. You know, there, there shouldn't be a choice between them. And to me, you know, a balanced education has to provide equally for the arts, broadly conceived, the sciences, for physical education, because we are embodied creatures, you know, and we don't just think about the world between our ears. We live in the world holistically. And, and you know, obviously between literacy and mathematics, there sh- we shouldn't be trying to distinguish the importance of these things, but to see that they are synergistically connected. And it's why, you know, I keep coming back to this idea that education is facing similar challenges now as we do in the natural world, in the rest of the natural world, I should say. I mean, as I said, the other analogy I wanted to mention is that that our education systems grew up in the context of industrialism in the 18th and 19th centuries into the last century uh, and were largely modelled on the practices of industrialism. You know, mass systems of public education came about to meet the needs of the industrial economy. And in many respects, they, they resemble industrial processes. But the real, you know, that's to say they're linear, they're about conformity, they're about compliance. Uh, but the real analogy for me is not industrial manufacturing, which is about inanimate objects. It's, it's industrial agriculture, which were systems to cultivate living creatures and plants. And, but based on industrial principles, and particularly mechanization and mass production, the emphasis on yield, and also facilitated by you know, the, the development of pesticides and of, of chemical fertilizers. So, you know, for the first time in history, it became possible to cultivate vast tracts of, of monocultural plantations you know, and, and to do this through chemicals and technologies which were alien to the natural process that they were being used to cultivate. And it was a great success for a very long time. The trouble is, you know, with industrial agriculture, we've imperiled the planet because we've been destroying water systems, ecosystems, and also the soils on which we all depend. We know this. We're seeing vast erosions of soil across the world now. And these practices, you know, vibrant and successful as they've been in their own way, are simply unsustainable. And they're unsustainable because they're destroying the natural ecosystems on which we all depend. 
And, you know, the difference with organic and sustainable agriculture is that they, they work with the natural rhythms of, of life. And, and, you know, sustainable farms recognize that instead of being focused on yield and output to the, at the expense of the soil, the way you have sustainable crops and culture, uh, cultures is to focus on the soil. You know, if you get the soil right, the plants will be fine. Uh, if you ignore the soil, they may be fine in the short run, but they won't sustain it. And I think what's happened in education is, is exactly parallel. We've had these depersonalized, uh, inhuman uh, processes of testing and compliance and conformity, which dull the appetite for learning. And along the way, we've eroded the culture of education. And what I'm talking about is a cultural shift. If you get the culture right in an organization, if you have a, like in the natural world, if you have a vibrant mix of in the ecosystem of the arts, the sciences, if you have a vibrant ratio between teachers and learners, close links with the community, then schools flourish, communities flourish in a way that they don't if you try to treat them as impersonal processes that are driven by testing and the kind of rather sterile form of, of data production. So knowing, understanding how the natural processes of life and learning operate should be the key to uh, not only to how we do education more effectively, but how education becomes synergistic with the lives we're trying to live on the planet generally. And in both cases, we've managed in the past 300 years to kind of dissociate ourselves in this process. And I think that the time's racing ahead of us now where we have to get back in sync with these natural rhythms or, or we'll continue to bear a big price for it. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. You spoke a lot about the environment and the parallels. One of the questions I like to ask guests that is one of my favorite questions to ask is that what the environment means to them. Because at the beginning, I thought everyone's going to answer what I did. But the passion is, seems to be as great with everybody, but it's unique. And I mean, it seems to me, the, when I asked about your sustained and probably increasing passion, is that there's something coming from inside on education. And I feel that there's, that's also the same in the environment. And I feel like maybe they're very, very similar, but I'm not sure. Well, yes, they are. Yeah, yeah I think it's the same. I'd say it's the same or a comparable set of issues, and they have common roots, and, and the solutions are, are the same. I mean, I, I tend to think of it as, you know, that we have two climate crises at the moment, which are interconnected. There's the, the crisis in the natural environment, which is undeniable, uh, as we look around us, we know this. I mean, if, if you, when I gave the talk at TED in 2006, the first one, I remember quoting Jonas Salk, who said that if all uh, insects were to disappear from the earth, all life on earth would cease within 50 years. If all human beings disappeared from the earth, the rest of life would flourish. And there's an essential truth in that, you know, and we're seeing it now that the, with the collapse of insect colonies and populations all around the planet just now, it, it's, this is Rachel Carson's silent spring. And it's, it's because we've, we've marinated the earth in chemicals which are having toxic effects on the vitality of the planet and also with the farming practices, which we know. I mean, you know all this. I don't, not, don't have to rehearse it. You know, it's clear that, that our appetites and our industrial practices are destroying the ecosystems on which we actually depend. 
And, you know, this isn't to say that the earth's going to end. I mean, the earth's going to be fine. <laughs> really. I mean, the earth will sh shake us off like a rash. I mean, the planet survived much worse things than humanity uh, over its four and a half billions of life so far. But, you know, we're creating conditions which are unsustainable for us. And, and it's within our power to fix them. But we have a similar crisis in, in human culture just now. Uh, and, and you can... I mean, you can enumerate them. We, we have, according to the Wealth Organization, one of the greatest causes of morbidity among human populations just now is depression. And this is at a time when we're materially better off than we've ever been in the history of humanity, taken overall. Uh, we're, we're going through the world's you know, worst opioid crisis currently. We're seeing you know, a, a continuation of brutal conflicts. And I know that Stephen Pinker and others quite rightly will argue that these things are in decline, but they're still present. And you know, the, all the evidence is that we're, our technology is outpacing our spiritual capacity to deal with the consequences of it. And so there is a crisis in human culture, and we know it, we see it, and it's being added to uh, for our students very often by the unnecessary pressures that we put them under in education. And education is not the source of all these issues, but it should be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And, and that's the recalibration I and lots of other people are arguing for, that if we, if we can get education more on the side of the solution here, we're going to have a much better chance overall of evolving our relationships, not just with each other, but with the, the planet you know, that we depend upon. So that, yeah, they are directly connected in my mind. You know, there's one thing I ask, this comes from my project-based mode of teaching is, and also since the people I have on the show are, tend to be leaders and influential people and people that are in everyone's in lots of people's communities. And forgive me if, if I sound too pedantic or, or I, we can edit this out if you want, but I invite people to think of something, guests, I invite them to think of something that they could do, however, you know, not big or small, just something that to act on what the environment means to them. And if you're up for it, to share how it goes, because I think a lot of people at home feel like, well, if I act but no one else does, then what I do doesn't really matter. But, you know, I'd like to bring to them experience of the experience of, of others who do act on these things. And I wonder if you'd be game for doing something, coming up with something to act on that something that you're not already doing. Do you mean for the environment? Yeah, well, for the environment, but acting on your values, acting on what it means to you. So not necessarily what the New York Times says you should do or Greenpeace says you should do, you should do but what, what you feel is important. Well, you know, yeah, I will answer that. You know, people often ask about this you know, about how do we change the system, you know, whichever system they happen to be thinking about. And my, obviously my main preoccupation for a long time has been the education system. And, and I think people are often inhibited from doing that because they think it's too big a system and, and what difference will anything make. But human systems you know, are, you know, as you know, they're what theorists call complex adaptive systems. They're not fixed. They're not mechanical. They're not impersonal. They consist of the millions, billions of actions that individuals take all of the time. So the education system, to take an example, is made up of millions of people, literally hundreds of millions of people uh, in their different systems around the world, hundreds of thousands of institutions, countless interest groups. And it's enacted every day in what people do. And it changes. It does change. Systems change all the time. Uh, it can, they can be slow to change. They can have sudden uh, lurches forward. They are constantly subject to what are called you know, emergent features, emergent properties. So, for example, you know, technology has changed the way a lot of education is being practiced. 
people are can be deeply affected by a new idea, as you said you were, and, and I, I often am. You know, the, so it's important to recognise that systems exist in the actions of the people who, who who populate them. So I always want to say to teachers, for example, or anybody who works in education, if if you're if you're in the system, you are the system. You're part of it, and what you do is the system in practice. So if you're a teacher and you have a group of students, when the door closes behind you, if, if there is a door, what you do next is the education system for the people that you're facing. And if you change your practice, you change the system for them. And if enough people change what they do, it becomes a movement, and the movement then becomes a transformative change. And those things do happen. Historically, they have happened. It's what's happening just now in the environment as well, it, you know, with the kids coming onto the streets and challenging the lethargy of politicians in dealing with these large challenges that we face. It's happening with parents who are uh, deciding to oppose testing in schools. It's happening in the Me Too movement. You know, change happens more often than not from the ground up, uh, and certainly as much as it does from the top down. It, I, I did a book a few years ago called Creative Schools, the grassroots revolution that's transforming education. And I think it's important to recognize that, that, that change comes from the ground up as often as from the top down, but it's associated with the climate. So to come back to what you're saying about leadership, and I'll give you my example in just a minute. One of the the ways that we describe the, the environment, obviously, uh, the, the social as well as the physical environment, is we naturally use the word culture, which is a you know a term about growth. And, and culture is, you know, it's been defined various ways as the way we do things around here or more specifically as the values and forms of behavior that characterize different social groups. But culture is essentially a pact that communities make to behave in certain ways. And, uh, and sometimes they know they're doing it and sometimes it just becomes unconscious. It's through peer pressure. But culture, another way I think about culture is it's about permission. It's about what's all right and what isn't. It's where the boundaries of permission are set. I mean, the best recent example I, that always comes to mind is that you know, living in America, as I do now, it's been interesting to see that in uh, you know, the last number of years, every state in the union has passed legislation to approve same-sex marriage. And, and that's great. It didn't happen, though, because members of Congress had a retreat in Aspen and decided they should sell this issue to the electorate. It happened because there was a change in the culture. People changed their minds about this issue and required that the change came in the law. It came from the ground up. It was a changing climate. And I think, I think of the role of leadership as not so much command and control, but as climate control. The role of a leader in, a, in an organization is to set the cultural tone of the place and to say what's okay, what's not okay, you know, what works and what doesn't, and where are the boundaries of permission, and to be sensitive to the way the community itself is maybe reshaping and redefining it with their own expectations and their experiences. So the role of a leader is to facilitate as well. That's why I think the, the teachers as leaders and great leaders are also teachers. Yeah, I mean, the two roles are, are you know, very, very close, if not identical in, in many respects. So it is about you know, living by example, and it is about setting these, you know, knowing where the boundaries are and setting or resetting them. It's what happened hasn't it, in the transition between you know, President Obama and President Trump. You know, they both in their ways have reset the boundaries of what's, what's possible and what's permissible. And people will take their own view about where those boundaries are and, and you know, which is the better set of parameters. But that's what the role of leadership turns out to be. And so you can, through your own example, 
change the system according to how you set the boundaries for the people that you affect and you work with in your own classroom or in your own, in your own life. And so coming around to what you're saying, I mean, yes, I think it's, it, I never get much away from Gandhi's invocation to be the change that you want to see in the world. And there are all sorts of ways in which I hope anyway, I live my own talk. I mean, I've, you know, we've always tried to practice, you know, my wife and I, we've been together for 42 years and we've worked together all this time on these sorts of issues that we, you know, we try to be the change that we are advocating for in the way that we live our lives and in the work that we do. And it's, it's been true in the way we've always thought about and acted in education. And I mean, I've spent my life doing this. It's not like it's a hobby. And, and it's also true in the way that we think about our relationship with the environment. And I mean, for example, it's a very practical thing for me. What one of the ways in which we're despoiling the planet and also adding to the net sum of cruelty on the planet is through our obsession with the meat-based diet rather than the plant-based diet. And half my family, my brothers, my peers, are vegan. I teeter on the edge of veganism all the time. We eat very little meat. We avoid it whenever we can. We eat very little. Uh, we have very little to do with animal products, and we have very little to do with uh, artificial products as much as we can. And you know, we, it's something we try to practice all of the time. You know, I've been involved in supporting those movements in various ways as well. Uh, we've been doing. Uh, you know, my uh, brother has a very good website called the peaceful planet and uh, my two youngest brothers i mean they're young i mean they're in the 60s now but uh they were both professional soccer players in their day and, and fought for veganism you know from a very early age so you know there are there are ways in which you can practice these principles just in your daily life you don't have to launch a national campaign you just have to be part of the change that you want to see yeah i agree i, I agree with everything you just said and i wonder one of the things that i do when people have a few things in mind is I suggest making it a smart goal, you know, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time bound. And I wonder if it would be, if you'd be game for doing something you said on a, on a short term basis. Like, I mean, if you've been thinking about vegan to try vegan for a short time. We do. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. So I'm a little torn now because I, I think that we're past when your time was up. I have to go. I'm like five minutes past, if that's all right, Josh. Yeah. Well, I'd love to have, on, have you on a second time to share some of those experiences. And also because this is, to me has been every podcast I've listened to several times, but this is really, uh, I really appreciate what you've shared uh, and the, the breadth and depth of experience. Oh, um, thank you. You're welcome. It's a, I could say a lot more. And I often close with asking, is there any, anything you'd want to say directly to the, to the listeners that unprompted by me? Well, yeah, there's, there's a quote I came across years ago. Uh, it proved to be quite controversial for a lot of people, I know, but it's by a writer called Robert Audrey. Audrey. He wrote a book about the, the nature of humanity. And it was just, it was just a very interesting quote that's, that's often been referred to uh, about you know, the struggles that we have you know, collectively and internally with our sort of competing instincts and so on. And uh, the, part of the quote is he says, we were born of risen apes not fallen angels. And so what shall we wonder at? Our murders and massacres and missiles and our irreconcilable regiments or our treaties, whatever they may be worth, our symphonies, however seldom they may be played, our peaceful acres, however frequently they may be converted into battlefields, our dreams, however rarely they may be accomplished. He said, I'm paraphrasing now, the miracle of humanity is not how far we have sunk, but how magnificently we have risen. We are known among the stars by our poems, not our corpses. And I think that's an essentially optimistic view of the, uh, of the constant 
kind of trials and dynamic of of what is to be a human being in a rapidly changing world. And education is you know, best conceived, I think, as part of the uplifting process by which we, you know, we continue that that ascent of of appealing to our better instincts and our better capacities uh, and our ability to work together and to live together more harmoniously, not just among human beings, but with the rest of life on earth. I mean, that's, I think, the higher calling. And, you know, education to me is an essential part of that process. And it's what sustains my interest in it. And I'll put that quote in written on the webpage. And Ken Robinson, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure, Josh. Thank you. It almost pained me to hear the conversation reach its end for time. Everything he said, I would have loved to have pursued in 15 different directions. I really wish I could. I'd say if only we had more time, I would have loved to have continued. But I know that had we spoken for a day, I'd still feel like we barely scratched the surface. To say nothing about acting on what we spoke about, which would be a whole other set of things. Naturally, I would have liked to have formalized an environmental challenge to hear his results. But one, time. And two, he clearly already does these things. Anyway, I'll do what I can to bring him back. In the meantime, I recommend listening again, I know I will, and watching his videos, of which there are many online. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.